We've come now to the 10th message in this current series, Turning the World Upside Down. Uh, we're working our way through the New Testament book known as the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, if you've missed any of these messages and you'd like to uh, kind of catch up, you can view them at mylpcoli.com forward slash media uh, or on YouTube. Uh, if you happen to log on to our YouTube channel, just type Life Point Church of Olympia. Remember, there's an E in the word point because we just like to be difficult. Um, and, and while you're there, we want to encourage you to hit the like button uh, and uh, subscribe to the channel. And that just helps, uh, I guess, that's what they say. It helps more people see our channel. And so there will be more than six people that watch each week. Would you stand with me and let's read today's text aloud together. Acts chapter, five, or Acts chapter 4, rather, verses 5 through 22. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is God's word. You may be seated. In verses 1 to 4, which we saw last week, 
Peter and John are arrested by an annoyed group of religious dignitaries, including priests, the captain of the temple guard, and most prominently, the contingent from the sect of the Sadducees. And the reason they're hot under the collar, Luke tells us, is that these two apostles were preaching, or were teaching rather, the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. In response to that proclamation, 5,000 men believed and put their faith in Jesus. Uh, The proclamation of the gospel was preceded um, by the healing uh, of a lame man who had begged outside the gate of the temple for his entire life. He had never walked a day in his life, and he was well over 40 years old. Peter and John spent the night in jail, and verse 5 picks up the story on the next day when the Jewish ruling council, known as the Sanhedrin, gathered together in Jerusalem, presumably in the courtyard of Caiaphas, who at the time was serving as high priest. You might wonder uh, who's in this group. Uh, check out verses 5 and 6. Let's, uh, let's review Luke's list. There are rulers, which would have been a general designation for the members of the council, Uh, There were elders, it says, uh, who were the aged ones with long white beards who were highly regarded within the Sanhedrin and in Israel generally. Uh, There are scribes who were the religious teachers. These were the uh, educated ones in the Law of Moses, the Old Testament scriptures in general. Um, these were the, the brain waves who uh, you know you, you check with if you had a question about anything regarding scripture. And then there's uh, Annas, who is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Uh, he's still identified as a high priest, though he had been deposed in AD 15 by the Romans, but he retained his title, he retained his prestige, he retained his influence among the Jews in Jerusalem. And then there's Caiaphas, the one who at the time was occupying the role of high priest. Two other men are listed, John and Alexander, not John Alexander, but John and Alexander, about whom we know next to nothing, although it's likely they too were members of the high priestly family. Uh, All said, an auspicious crew. And what's particularly noteworthy, I think, is that the last time we saw this group assembled in this particular place for a similar purpose was when Jesus himself was arrested and brought here to this very same courtyard. About that fact, John Stott reflected, as they, the Sanhedrin, sat in their customary semicircle and Peter and John were brought before them, memories of the trial of Jesus must have flooded the apostles' minds. was history to repeat itself. They could hardly expect justice from that court, which had listened to false witnesses and unjustly condemned their Lord. Were they to suffer the same fate? Would they be handed over to the Romans and crucified? They must have asked themselves such questions. Astute observations, I think, and true. One can only begin to imagine what was going on in the minds and hearts of Peter and John as they were escorted there into the courtyard to stand before the council. 
And as the hearing begins, Peter and John are asked an opportune question. An opportune question. We read in verse 7, When they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? And what a question. See, I would imagine that if Peter and John could have chosen any question for their prosecutors to ask, it would have been this one. Because it gave them a, a wide open door of opportunity to, commun- to communicate the gospel and to lift up the name of Jesus Christ. In, uh, in football parlance, you would say that uh, those blockers opened a hole you could drive a truck through. So here's a principle for your personal ministry. Share the gospel at every opportunity and watch and listen for open doors. Share the gospel at every opportunity. Watch and listen for open doors. You might even create those open doors. Uh, I'm often asked, and you are too, when you go into a store, you go into an athletic club, you go, you know, wherever it is you're going, someone's going to say, hello, how are you? And, and I love Dave Ramsey's response, which is better than I deserve. And I found that uh, just that answer uh, opens up an opportunity for conversation because because the person responds invariably, oh, no, you 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 deserve a lot. And Oh, you shouldn't think that way. And why would you say that? And, and so it great, creates an opportunity for them, uh, for me to uh, share the gospel with them. So the question of the Sanhedrin echoed the question they'd asked Jesus when he overturned the money chamber, chambers, changers in the temple. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? It also reveals, I think, something about these powerful, influential Jewish leaders. A few things, in fact. I think it it reveals first that they were ignorant. And if not ignorant, they were at best spiritually insensitive. I mean, these men were regarded in Israel as the authorities on everything about Scripture, all the law, all the prophets, biblical theology, yet they themselves had failed to recognize Jesus as their Messiah. And instead, they did everything in their power to make sure that he was silenced and finally put to death. And on this occasion, they were either unable or they were unwilling to acknowledge the hand of God in the healing of this lame lame man. Secondly, their question actually exposes, I think, their arrogance. The, The Scriptures clearly warn against raising a hand against one of God's prophets. For example, in Psalm 105, verse 15, it's written, Touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. And yet these had beaten and crucified their Messiah, the Holy and Righteous One. They had killed the author of life, and now they had arrested these two apostles whose function in relationship to the gospel was also a prophetic one. Both of these things should have been evident to these members of the Sanhedrin, but it didn't seem to register with them at all. 
Jesus on multiple occasions had indicted them for rejecting and killing the prophets. And I think thirdly, their question suggests that they were in fact fearful. Fearful. What Peter and John were preaching, that is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and his glorification at the right hand of God the Father Almighty combined with the miracle that they had performed in healing the lame man had the profound potential to undermine the Sanhedrin's authority. And the enthusiasm of the people threatened their power. In fact, back in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22 and verse 2, we're told that the motive of the chief priests and the scribes for having sought to put Jesus to death in the first place was that they feared the people. Loss of power and influence was always of concern to them. In verses 8 to 12, then, Peter provides them with an honest comeback, an honest response. Again, before we examine Peter's reply, I want to remind you that the situation in which Peter and John found themselves on this particular day is precisely the kind of situation Jesus predicted they would face as his witnesses. Matthew 10, 17 to 18, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Jesus said there'd be days like this. There'd be days like this, Jesus said. And Jesus added this exhortation in verses 19 to 20. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. It's just amazing, isn't it? We shouldn't be surprised then to realize that the first thing we learn about Peter in verse 8 is that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. There are a couple of important things to understand about what's happening here. The first is that the language that Luke uses indicates that this was a special filling to equip him for this particular moment and the role that he would play as he stood before the Sanhedrin. And something each of us needs to understand is the essential difference between the baptism and the filling with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we confuse those. We kind of wad them up together, and we wonder what the distinctiveness is. Well, the Bible presents the baptism with the Spirit as a one-time for all time event. A one time for all time event. The Holy Spirit was poured out on the church on the day of Pentecost. So that at the moment that you placed your trust in Christ, the, the moment you were regenerated, you were born again, you received the baptism with the Spirit. You entered into that blessing of the baptism of the Spirit. And in the same way, the baptism with water 
initiates us into the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptism with the Spirit is the act of God by which he initiates us into fellowship with himself and with his church. As he marks us as his own, he sets us apart for his purposes. By contrast, the filling with the Holy Spirit is not a one-time event, but it's an ongoing one. And that's why Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus and said, be filled with the Spirit. The word that's translated filled there in the Greek language was in the present continuous tense so that a a literal translation would be be being filled with the Spirit. Be being filled with the Spirit. Keep drawing on the Spirit of God. So as you make yourself available, listen to this now, as you make yourself available to be used by God, you're going to experience many fresh fillings of the Spirit throughout your life as God works in you and through you to accomplish His purposes. But you'll never experience it unless you make yourself available to God to be used by Him. So here's another principle for personal ministry. Ask God to fill you with His Holy Spirit. Trust Him to speak through you and to use you for His purposes. Remember, we saw just uh, weeks ago Moses saying, God, I don't speak so good. Sometimes we think, well, God could never use a person like me for His purposes. And I would say, if if you think that's true, then you need to get a look at me because I'm a garden variety sinner if there ever was one. And he uses me. Um, Sometimes the words that come tumbling out of my mouth don't make any sense. And yet, God can use that too. So every day, ask him to fill you with his Holy Spirit or the relationships, the tasks, the encounters you will have on any any given day, and then trust Him to speak through you and to use you according to His purpose. Going on in verses 8 to 10, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you And to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. I love how Peter frames the essence of what's really going on. They were being examined for a good deed done to a crippled man. And the Sanhedrin's upset that a good deed was done to a crippled man. Over and over again during his earthly ministry, Jesus took the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees to task for their clear lack of mercy and compassion. And Peter implies the same thing at the outset of his reply. And they were more concerned about what the apostles had done and how it made them look then they were happy for the lame man who had never before walked a day in his life. 
but was now walking and leaping and praising God. Notice with me that, that Peter deflects, he just deflects any of the credit, any of the praise to the name of Jesus. And for the third time in as many chapters, he indicts another group of Jews by saying, you killed him and God raised him from the dead. It was by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom they crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, putting them on the wrong side of God, that the man was healed and was now standing next to Peter and John in front of the Sanhedrin as exhibit A in their defense. And Peter went on, this Jesus, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Well, what does that mean? The, the language and imagery of verse 11 uh, come from the Psalms and from the prophet Isaiah. In the first century world of construction, the, the chief cornerstone was, was an ornamental stone that identified the building, that, that gave it its particular uniqueness and Dignity, and it would have been laid at ground level, visible, but at ground level. And then everything would be built on, on that. Isaiah 28, 16, the prophet said, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Psalmist, Psalm 118, 22 to 23, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Notice that both of these scriptures identify a cornerstone, and in both cases, the one who lays the stone is none other than the Lord God. In Matthew 21, Jesus identified himself as the cornerstone of which the prophets spoke and implicated the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees as the builders who rejected that chief cornerstone. And he added this sober warning, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So when Peter spoke of Jesus as the chief cornerstone rejected by the builders, it wasn't. The first time they'd heard it, it would not have endeared Peter to them. In fact, it would have cut like a knife. By the way, will you notice with me uh, two pictures of Peter? The first one before. Think of the, the before and after pictures you see in the weight loss, you know, advertisements. The first picture is a guy that's kind of built like me, right? And then the next picture is a person holding their pants out clear out here, right? You've seen those. Peter received the baptism of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And, and the second picture is after. The before picture is on the, the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested. It's a picture of a mature man, a, a burly fisherman, being so intimidated by a teenage servant girl that he denied ever having known Jesus. And the after picture is right here in front of the Sanhedrin where Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking boldly and fearlessly to power, confronting this 
body of rulers who had the power to determine his fate with the truth that they had rejected the cornerstone laid by God himself, that they had crucified him, that God had raised him from the dead. What a transformation in Peter. What a moment. And he doesn't let up. In his next breath, he declared regarding Jesus, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I've noticed, haven't you, that uh, the world hates the exclusivity of the gospel. They want to say truth is relative. You have your truth. I have my truth. We each have our truth. We should each speak our truth. What they don't say, but what seems overwhelmingly true, is you can speak your truth as long as it doesn't offend my truth. Claiming tolerance as the greatest of all virtues, what they cannot tolerate is the exclusivity of Christianity, the claim that there is salvation in no one else but Jesus, that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved or face eternal condemnation. The world asserts that there are many paths that that lead to heaven, that God has many names that each religion has a piece of the truth, but none has the whole truth. And they'll say, oh, you Christians, you you think you have a corner on the truth. You're always saying that Jesus is the only way to God. And what they perhaps don't realize is that we're not the ones who first said it. That person was Jesus himself who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes No one comes to the Father except through me. There's a well-known story that has its origins in India. It resonates with a religiously pluralistic and relativistic culture about six blind men who visit the palace of the Raja, the king And there each of them encounters an elephant for the first time. I'm sure many of you have heard the story. And one of them puts his hand out and touches the side of the elephant and he says, how smooth. An elephant is like a wall. The second blind man put out his hand and, and he touched the trunk of the elephant. How round. An elephant is like a snake. And the third blind man put out his hand and and touched the tusk of the elephant. How sharp! An elephant is like a spear. And the fourth blind man put out his hand and touched the leg of the elephant. He said, how tall! An elephant is like a tree. The fifth blind man reaches out his hand and touches the ear of the elephant. And he says, how wide! An elephant is like a fan. The sixth blind man puts out his hand and touches the tail of the elephant and says, how thin an elephant is like a rope. And they begin to argue, each of them thinking that his perception of the elephant is the correct one. And the king, overhearing their argument, says, the elephant is a very large animal. Each of you touched only one part. In order to find out what an elephant is really like, you must put all the parts together. So the blind men recognize the truth of what the king has said. 
They agree that each of them was in possession of only a portion of the truth. And this story is often applied to religion in order to make the point that no one religion has a comprehensive vision of truth. So we need to appreciate the contributions of all the religions of the world if we're ever going to grasp ultimate reality. 20th century missiologist Leslie Newbigin was, was thinking about this one day, and it, it dawned on him that the parable backfires on itself, that the story undercuts its own call to humility by the arrogant claim of possessing the comprehensive truth that it claims is unavailable. And he wrote, The story is told from the point of view of the king who is not blind, but can see that each of the blind men is unable to grasp the full reality of the elephant and only able to get a hold of part of the truth. The story is constantly told in order to neutralize the affirmation of the great religions to suggest that they learn humility and recognize that none of them can have more than one aspect of the truth. But of course, the real point of the story is exactly the opposite. If the king were also blind, there would be No story, the story is told by the king, and it is the immensely arrogant claim of one who sees the full truth, which all the world's religions are only groping after. It embodies the claim to know the full reality, which relativizes all the claims of the religions and philosophies. In his book, The Reason for God, Timothy Keller took this up, and he sums up the contradiction this way. He said, how could you know that each blind man only sees part of the elephant unless you claim to be able to see the whole elephant. How could you possibly know that no religion can see the whole truth unless you yourself have the superior, comprehensive knowledge of spiritual reality you just claimed that none of the religions have? See, Jesus came to reveal God to us. Biblical truth is revealed truth. It's not something we come to on our own. Jesus came to reveal God to us. He came to reconcile us to God. He came to open the way for us to enjoy a personal relationship with him. Jesus said that he is the way, not a way. He said that he is the truth, not a truth. He said that he is the life, not a life. And that sounds pretty exclusive to me. The Bible says that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You know, for years I struggled with that phrase, by which we must be saved. I wanted to change must be saved to can be saved or may be saved. Make it a little more free, volitional. But what I finally realized is that it means what it says. God has declared that we must be saved or face eternal separation from Him. Jesus Christ is God's only provision for the predicament of our sin. There is no other Savior. And so we must be saved by faith in the name of Jesus Christ or never be saved at all. So here's another principle that each of us needs to embrace for our personal ministries, and that is that we've got to reject the relativism that the world wants to foist on us 
embrace the exclusivity of the gospel and point people to Jesus as the only Savior. I heard a story about Billy Graham that I think is true, that, that he as a young man had had struggles you know, with, uh, with the inspiration and the authority of, of biblical scripture. But he came to a point one day where he said, God, I'm leaving, I'm leaving my confusion behind. I'm going to embrace your word as truth, and I'm going to preach it with all my heart. And that made all the difference, didn't it? Because he preached what he believed. So reject relativism, embrace the exclusivity of the gospel, and point people to Jesus as the only Savior. In verses 13 to 14, uh, the, uh, the Sanhedrin arrives at what I'll just call an astonished comprehension. An astonished comprehension. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the men who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. And there are three words in one phrase here in verse 13 that describe the Sanhedrin's perception, their comprehension of Peter and John. The first word is boldness. They saw the boldness, the, the confidence, the freedom with which Peter and John spoke to them. No, no one spoke to the Sanhedrin that way. No one got in their face. And what Peter had been saying had to have hit them like a ton of bricks. The second word is uneducated. And that word in Greek literally means illiterate. Most people in first century Israel were illiterate. Peter and John were Galilean fishermen. They weren't trained theologians. But by the filling of the Holy Spirit, notice this, Peter delivers this powerful message that day that checked all of the boxes. He landed all of his punches with theological accuracy, with spiritual power and authority. The third word is common. They were ordinary men. In fact, this word in Greek is literally idiots. It doesn't mean that they were mentally deficient, but that they had received no formal instruction. It actually means the way the translators of the ESV uh, translated the, the previous word, uneducated. See, what stood out that day to the Sanhedrin about Peter and John was not that they were educated, not that they were sophisticated in any way, not that they had a pedigree that the world would applaud, but rather that they had been with Jesus. God uses simple people who are willing to submit themselves to him and be directed by his spirit. Neither could these religious leaders deny or explain away the reality that this man whom they themselves had seen laying at the beautiful gate for decades had just walked into the room under his own power and stood tall and strong before them, beautifully healed. Another principle for your ministry. Submit your deficits to God and let him turn them into his assets. See, God's not impressed with all of our degrees. 
all of our formal education. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it. It just means that never never think that God's going to be impressed. He uses people, simple people, ordinary people, who are willing to submit their deficits to God and say, God, here I am, as I am, like I am. I got deficits. I got lots of deficits. And Lord, would you turn them into your assets? And he will. And he does. In verses 15 to 18, Peter and John are issued an onerous command. An onerous command. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. You can just feel their dilemma, can't you? They're embarrassed. They're perplexed. They needed time to think, discuss the matter. So they ordered Peter and John out of the room. John Stott commented they couldn't deny it, and they wouldn't admit it. They couldn't deny it, and they wouldn't admit it. They couldn't deny that a notable sign had been performed, but they had to prevent it spreading further among the people. So what to do? What to do? Oh, I know. Let's silence it. Let's censor it. Let's cancel it. Let's get our fact checkers to deny it. So their solution was to command Peter and John not to speak or teach at all, at all, at all, in the name of Jesus. It was a clear command. It established legal precedent for further action should the apostles fail to obey it, an eventuality which we'll see in just a matter of weeks when we come to the latter portion of chapter 5. And the command of the Sanhedrin presented Peter and John with an irresolvable conflict. An irresolvable conflict. You know, as Christians, you and I have a biblical mandate to obey the laws of the land and to be submissive to the government. Um, You know that, don't you? Don't you? Guess not. So listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Don't you wish he hadn't said that? See, if if you're failing to submit yourself to the governing authorities or you're resisting them in some way, Paul wants you to know that you're resisting God and the human authorities he's appointed over you and that your resistance will invite judgment. When you say, well, some of the leaders I'm resisting are illegitimate leaders. I didn't vote for them. No, but God allowed them to get elected. 
So you don't, don't miss that he was commanding them to be submissive to the Roman government. Not exactly the paragon of virtue and justice. Peter himself gave similar instruction. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Those Christians were to be law-abiding citizens. Why? For the Lord's sake, he said. As a way of honoring the Lord whose name we bear. And secondly, to silence those who would accuse us of being insubmissive or even subversive to the government. God gets our reverence. God gets our worship. Our governmental leaders are to receive our honor, even if they are dishonorable, which at some point they all are because they're human and sinful, just like us. And then trust God for the outcome that he intends, which is not always the one we want. See, see, behind these commands, you hear God saying, I got this. You do this, I'll take care of the I'll take care of the details. I'll I'll take responsibility for the outcome. It's not always the one we want. But he takes responsibility for it. So now Peter and John have a decision to make. And it was indeed an irresolvable conflict. It wasn't a difficult one to make at all. But they made it in the full realization that it could result in severe consequences. Verses 19 to 20, But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So the Sanhedrin could arrest Peter and John, but they couldn't arrest the gospel, could they? And the choice that they made that day, we would call civil disobedience. It's the choice that we as Christians who respond to a higher authority have to make when our submission to the government conflicts with our obedience to God. In chapter 5, when the apostles are again brought before the same council to answer for why they are again preaching in the name of Jesus, Peter and all the apostles said, we must obey God rather than men. The great commission, make disciples of all the nations, is a greater command. With regard to the gospel, when the government says, shut up, God says, speak up. You know, throughout the past couple of years of this pandemic, as both the federal and state governments have given directives that created some questions about how we as Christians should respond, whether we should comply, we as a pastoral staff have struggled together at great length to arrive at what we have felt are sound biblical answers. And 
the simple principle we've sought to conscientiously apply in our decision-making has been, does any of what the government is asking of us actually conflict with the will of God as it's revealed in Scripture? And then we've asked, if so, at what point do we perceive conflict and in what way and how should we then respond? We have been criticized by some. We've been applauded by others for the choices we've made. Some have felt that we've moved too fast. Some think, some think we've moved too slowly and in the wrong directions. And it's been excruciating at times, to be honest with you. But I feel confident and at peace with the fact that our attempts at decision-making and our actual decisions have been made on clear biblical grounds. So here again is uh, another principle for your personal ministry. When your submission to the government comes into conflict with your obedience to God. And I would just interject here. I think that times are coming in the not-too-distant future where there will be more occasions. Be sure your decision-making is rooted in the clear teaching of God's Word. See, each of us needs to be very sure when we choose to engage in civil disobedience on biblical grounds that we're sure that we are in fact standing on biblical grounds. Not just the passages we like and that support our own attitudes and feelings. One of my professors in school used to say, never confuse what is scriptural for what is biblical. By that he meant that you can isolate certain scriptures and make them say what you want them to say. But to be biblical means that you see them in the larger context of the whole of scripture, the whole of the Bible. In Acts 4, 21 to 22, we read this, when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And you get the sense, don't you, that that if they could have punished them, they would have. They would have. But it wasn't politically expedient. All the people were praising God for what had happened. But as we come to the end of this passage, don't miss that the Sanhedrin has given It's warning, and after stressing the nature of that warning, what would happen if it went unheeded, they let them go. It was the moderation of the people that prevented them from doing more for all the people, it says, were praising God for what had happened, and yet the stage now is set for further conflict and for more drastic consequences. Well, very quickly, let's review together those five principles for personal ministry. The first was to share the gospel at every opportunity. Watch and listen for open doors. Be attentive that there there are lots of open doors. Ask God to help you see them. Secondly, ask God to fill you with with His Holy Spirit. As I said earlier, just every day, every morning, say, God, would you fill me with your Holy Spirit today for the people I'll encounter, for the problems that I'll face, for the opportunities that you will put in my way, and then trust him to speak through you 
and to use you for his purposes. Third, reject relativism, the relativism that the world wants to promote, and embrace the objective truth of the gospel. Direct people to Jesus as the only Savior. Fourth, submit your deficits to God and let him turn them into his assets. All God's children got problems, right? We all got deficits. Let him turn them into his assets. Fifth, when your submission to the government comes into conflict with your obedience to God, be sure your decision-making is rooted in the clear teaching of God's Word. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage, this story that occupies almost three full chapters in this book of Acts. What a way for your church to begin its mission. What a a powerful picture that all of Jerusalem witnessed as this man was healed in the name of Jesus Christ. As the apostles stood before the Sanhedrin and spoke truth to power. Lord, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit? Would you give us many opportunities to share the gospel? And Lord, would you, would you help us to trust that when we open our mouths to speak, as you have filled us with your Holy Spirit, that the words that come out you will use, you will use according to your purposes. Lord, help us to stand on the truth of the gospel and live according to your word. We pray it in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.